Romans chapter one, beginning in verse 26, Paul writes, for this reason, God gave them up to vile passions for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality Wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve those who practice them. Remember that Paul has opened his letter and offered his letter like a lawyer arguing a case. Paul presents his credentials and his Christ in verses one through five, he writes words of encouragement to the congregation in Rome in verses six through 14, his confidence in the gospel to save sinners and sanctify saints in verses 16 and 17. Paul will enter a general charge in verses 18 and 19 and then specific charges all the way through verse 32, the general charge. God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who push the truth away from themselves. For the truth about God is known to them instinctively. Wilmington offers a great list of the specific charges from verses 20 through 32. Remember what he's doing is he's writing an indictment. The first charge, inexcusable ignorance in verse 20. Because God has revealed his existence and power to mankind. The second indictment, ingratitude in verse 21. People are thankless, refusing to worship their creator. Third indictment, insolence in verse 22. Claiming themselves to be wise without God, they become fools and set. Fourth indictment, idolatry in verse 23. They exchange God's glory for idols resembling mere people, birds, animals, snakes, Fifth indictment, immorality in verses 24 through 27. They're guilty of lesbianism and homosexuality. Sixth indictment, incorrigibility in verses 28 through 32. They embrace their wicked deeds in verse 29. They endorse the wickedness in verse 32. So as you look at the passage, Paul has listed the ingredients of unbelief. Remember what we've already seen. We looked at those who suppress the truth in verse 18, 19 and 20. Those who pervert the truth in verse 22, 1, 22, 23, which leads to the corruption of life. Verses 24 and 5. The corruption expresses itself then in the worst kind of depravity. Verses 26 through 32. God gives people over to their sin. We might think of this section as the dynamics of depravity. Think about what you've read. Unbelief gives free expression to depravity. In other words, when a person in their mind decides to say, I don't believe what the Bible says. I don't believe what the Bible says about God. I don't believe what the Bible says about the character of God, the nature of God, the message of God. The Messiah of God. Then you're free to do whatever you want with whomever you want. By the way, I keep using that term depravity. What do you suppose it means? Fundamentally, it means bent. Crooked. We might think about the term in moral terms. It means corruption. 
Theologians and philosophers debate whether human beings are basically good or not so good. The Bible teaches that human beings are corrupt. The issue in the Bible isn't whether or not human beings are corrupt. The issue becomes how corrupt are they? Theologians speak in terms of what's called total depravity and utter depravity. By the way, to be utterly depraved is to be, as R.C. Sproul writes, as wicked as one could possibly be, unquote. Total depravity means human beings are completely corrupt. That is, that there is no part of our nature that has been untouched by sin. Our minds have been affected by sin. Our speech, our language, our heart. I prefer the term radical corruption. Radical, not in the 1960s way of thinking, but in the Latin sense of the word, meaning at the core or at the center. In our youth culture, radical meant extreme. Because we are sinful in our core, this manifests itself in extreme sin. And so Paul will later write in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, or actually in verse 10, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There's none who understand. There's none who seek after God. They have all turned aside. They have all together become unprofitable. There's no one who does good. No one. And that's the claim that Paul is going to affirm. Because we live in a world where people are reluctant to actually embrace The notion that a real sin requires a real savior in Ecclesiastes chapter seven, verse 20, it says, for there is not a just man upon the earth that does good and doesn't sin. The Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter six, entitled of the fall of man of sin and the punishment thereof, it says concerning the fall of Adam and Eve, and I quote, by this sin, speaking in the garden, they fell from their original righteousness and communication or communion with God and so became dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the parts and faculties of soul and body there. They being the root of all mankind, the guilt of this sin was imputed and at the the same time, death and sin, the corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity, descending from them by ordinary generation from this original corruption, whereby we are utterly indisposed, disabled and made opposite of all good and wholly inclined to all evil do proceed transgressions, unquote. Sounds pretty bleak. We live in a world that is cruel and corrupt and bent. There was a newly appointed pastor who was found standing in his study window at the church. It was an inner city church and his study had a view of the city. And one of the elders came in and found him sobbing. And he sought to console him. He said, don't worry. After a while, you'll get used to it. And the minister replied, yes, I know. That's why I'm crying. We live in a world where we're so accustomed to sin. It's a part of who we are. We are accustomed to sin like fish are accustomed to water. We live in it. We swim in it. We breathe it. And when we are removed from it, we are shocked. Have you ever tried to stop sinning? It's like trying to hold your breath. The truth is that some of us can hold our breath longer than others, but eventually all of us will gasp for air. And the truth is that once you stop breathing altogether, it will mean that you will have died. 
One of the ways that God expresses his anger in the passage comes as a shock and as a surprise. His anger is to allow the person to do whatever he or she desires. In other words, the anger doesn't take place in the form of some dreaded disease or lightning from the sky or even hurricanes and other natural disasters. It eventually comes in the form that those who desire to do whatever they want to do apart from God, apart from the Bible, apart from whatever prohibitions or restrictions that the Bible makes, they are allowed to do it. The person who abandons themselves to their own passion then abandons God and then they find themselves abandoned by God in the end. We almost always underestimate sin's effect on our thinking and our living. We almost always underestimate God's holiness and righteousness and perfect character. And because we underestimate the depth of our sin and we underestimate the holiness of God's character, we will eventually sink into a quagmire of personal sin. Even as we look at this text, there are two opposite extremes that we've got to avoid. One will be to simply evaluate The content of the passage in light of the current culture. The other one is to overemphasize one sin at the expense of all sin. But the truth is we have to come to grips with what Paul is trying, desperately trying to tell us. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. What he's desperately trying to tell me and what he's desperately trying to tell you is that everyone is without excuse. Jew or Greek, Jew or Gentile, black, white, male, female. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Every single person needs a savior. All are without excuse. Even you and even me. Moral perversion leads to mental depravity, which results in a debased character. And as we peer into this very ugly picture, we're hard pressed to hold out hope because guess what? Our goal can't be to find one redeeming factor that keeps our self-esteem intact. But we need to do what Paul really is asking us to do. And this might come again as a shock and a surprise to you. But what Paul is going to argue throughout the book of Romans is he's going to encourage you to give up on yourself. To trust Jesus that your only hope is in Christ. God isn't looking for even one redemptive spark inside of you. Jesus Christ alone can save you. Because so long as you are laboring under the false idea that there's something hopeful about you, that you don't really need a savior and that you're fine just the way that you are, then you are in trouble. Spurgeon said there never was a man who was in a state of grace who did not know him himself in himself to be in a state of ruin, a state of depravity, a state of condemnation. Spurgeon knew that the moment that you come into a right relationship with God in Christ, the moment you've experienced grace and mercy, the moment that you've been redeemed and reconciled to God, that there's something, something that was broken and something that was wrong that only Jesus can fix. And so he begins with the sensual dimension of depravity. Look at verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Again, we see the expression that we first were introduced to in verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up. Verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up. Later, in verse 28, God gave them up. What does that mean? What does that expression mean? It's a legal term. 
It's a judicial expression which was used in the ancient world when you handed over a prisoner who has just received adjudication by the judge. In other words, you hand over a prisoner to receive his or her just sentence. So here the idea is that God actually hands you over. In what sense? In the sense of the person who says, I don't believe God. I don't trust God. I don't want God. I don't want the Bible. I don't want Jesus. I don't want the gospel. I don't want any of it. What do you want? I want whatever I want. And God says, I find you able to do whatever you want. You can act out your fantasies. You can make good on all of your decisions. A.T. Robertson, who may have been maybe one of the most important geniuses when it came to the original language, says of this word, quote, here it clearly refers to a judicial punishment for men's willful, deliberate rejection of God to have God let one go is the worst fate that can overtake any human being. Yet that is the inevitable result of a stubborn refusal to let God have his way. Then A.T. Robertson writes, quote, the words sound to us like clods on a coffin as God leaves men to work their own wicked will, unquote. In other words, it's this it's the way it's a way of saying you're a person shaking their fist at God and saying, I want to do exactly what I want to do. And the Lord says, OK. All right. And he says. He gave them over to vile passions. It's also translated shameful lusts. And there's no delicate way to hide from Paul's words. He's describing sexual perversion. He describes it in verse 24 as heterosexual perversion. In verses 26 and 27, he describes it as homosexual perversion. Now, I need you to remember the context. Suppression of the truth leads to a distortion of the truth, which leads to a perversion of life. People do not practice sexual immorality in a cultural vacuum, in a mental vacuum, in an emotional vacuum, in, in a spiritual vacuum. There's a reason why all of this is happening. Paul uses homosexual behavior among women and men as an illustration to how far the perversion will go. By the way, the original Greek text is even more dramatic than the English version. The words for men and women literally in the original language says male. Female. It's genderfied, if you will. In verse 27, it says, likewise, also the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust for one another. Men with men committing what is shameful, receiving in themselves the penalty for the error which was due. Another way of saying this for their females exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, the males abandoned the natural function of the female and burned in their desire towards one another male with male committing indecent act. Or as Dr. Robertson suggests, he, he translates that twisted deformities and receiving in their own person the penalty of their error. Paul is obviously speaking about homosexual acts. The issue isn't whether or not this is a description of homosexual behavior. The real issue that we have to ask is. Why does Paul in describing the depravity of human behavior begin here? Why does he begin here? Because there are other sins. There are sins that are just as bad. We're going to answer that in just a moment. C.S. Lewis writes, and I quote, If anyone thinks that Christians regard unchastity, in this particular instance he's talking about sexual immorality, as the supreme vice, he is quite wrong. The sins of the flesh are bad. 
but they are the least bad of all sins. All the worst pleasures are purely spiritual. The pleasure of putting other people in the wrong, of bossing and patronizing and spoiling sport and backbiting, the pleasure of power, of hatred. There are two things inside of me competing with the human self, which I must try to become. They are the animal self and the diabolical self. And the diabolical self is the worst of the two. That is why a cold, self-righteous prig who goes regularly to church may be far nearer to hell than a prostitute. But of course, it's better to be neither, he writes. But we have to revisit the question again. Why does Paul begin with homosexual perversion? And the answer might come as a shock to you, I think. Especially given the culture and society in which we live. I think that he begins with this Because it's so obviously wrong. Because it so obviously points to the nature and the extent when sin has overtaken mankind. Other sins are evil, but the Lord points out to this inversion or rather perversion, this corruption of relationships so so that we can see the running infected sore. It's like a canker sore on the lip of humanity. There is There is this obvious problem, this moral canker sore. The sin will begin with what is seen and obvious. And this is what makes it so startling. Because we live in a culture and a society that has come to the conclusion that not only is homosexuality okay, but that it should be celebrated. And this is so interesting to me. That what was obvious to them has become so not obvious to us. Are you involved with with homosexual behavior right at this very moment? Do you enjoy watching homosexual acts? Have you ever had a homosexual experience? I need to help you with something. Homosexual behavior is not a sickness. It's a sin. It's not a preferential choice. It's a perversion. And I'm telling you this to give you hope. And you might be thinking, well, I don't feel hopeful. As a matter of fact, I feel mad. I I feel a little bit offended. But that's not the point that the text is making. The point that the text is making is that there's a remedy for sin. You see, there are illnesses. There are real illnesses that there is no cure for. There are forms of illness that are so debilitating that you can't walk away from it. But the Bible makes it abundantly clear that homosexual behavior is a sin which can be abandoned and forsaken and forgiven and cleansed. And I need you to understand in part the historical context, because some of the Romans reading these words or hearing these words from Paul would have been willing and unwilling partners in all kinds of sexual behavior and all kinds of perverse behavior. And they're hearing what Paul is writing. But remember where Paul is, even as he's writing these words, Do you know where he's at. He's in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, Paul will write to the Corinthians, Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed and you were sanctified and you were justified in the name name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. Paul points out this specific sin 
Because as he's writing these words in Corinth, he is surrounded by homosexual behavior. When he would watch walk in the Agora of Corinth, on either side of him would have been temple prostitutes soliciting their wares. Everywhere that Paul went in Corinth was the blue light district of the Greek world. In Greek culture, homosexual behavior among the nobles was considered the purest and the highest form of love. Sounds kind of like Hollywood today. But you need to understand something, that the attitude in Corinth was no different from the attitude in Rome. You may not know this, but the of the first 15 emperors in the Roman Empire, 14 of them engaged in openly homosexual practices. Why am I telling you that? Because it was a practice that wasn't just simply engaged in, but celebrated. You may come to the realization that Romans chapter 1 doesn't just simply describe ancient Rome and ancient Greece, but it describes Denver and New York and Los Angeles and Hong Kong and Bangkok. Homosexuals comprise 35% of the population in San Francisco. There are liberal wings of the Christian church who would declare that homosexual behavior is to be accepted as a God-honoring expression of intimacy and affection. And some would even suggest that we can accept homosexual relations as whole and natural and healthy and even appealing. The truth Homosexual behavior is not healthy. It's risky. And no wonder Paul puts at the end of this section the sober warning and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. You see, the truth is, I was born in New Orleans, one of the great capitals of homosexuality, raised in Southern California. Think about it. I graduated from the University of San Francisco. There's never been a time in my life where I haven't dealt with people who have suffered and who struggle with same-sex attraction. When Paul writes about this, he understands it too. He understands that bondage to this sin leads to a loss of personal identity and uncertainty about who you are and your role, and your place in life. The degrading of their bodies leads to all kinds of physical diseases. And if you are engaged in a lifestyle of same-sex attraction, the chances of dying are almost 70% greater. The Center for Disease Control reports that in the United States, an estimated 15.3 million new cases of sexually transmitted diseases occur each year, and at least 25% of those are teenagers. Of the top 11 reportable diseases in the U.S. in 2013, five were sexually transmitted. Chlamydial infections, gonorrhea, HIV, AIDS, syphilis, hepatitis B, $10 billion was spent on sexually transmitted diseases. 17 billion if you include HIV. As of 2011, the World Health Organization says that there are 34 million people living with HIV AIDS worldwide and another 2.5 million will be infected each year. According to Children at Risk, there are 800,000 human beings who are being sexually trafficked worldwide. And many of them will suffer sexual assault. I spent seven years in social services. Social scientists, those who are conservative and those who are liberal, the best social scientists will tell you that in our culture and society, one out of every four women, children, girls, have been sexually assaulted in some way, shape or form. There's been unwelcome sexual behavior in their lives. The statistics are also stark for young boys. One out of every five 
boys will experience some kind of devastating sexual encounter which will affect them for the rest of their life. And you may have never been involved with these kinds of behaviors. Maybe you managed to escape the ravages of our times. But none of us have escaped the ravages of the mental depravity Paul is about to describe. You know what's the most disturbing thing about this chapter? The most disturbing thing about this chapter is not that it ends here. Paul will continue. He won't be content until he has listed not just my sin and your sin, but everyone's sin. He places us next to the most depraved and corrupt sinners on the outside by listing the depravity and the corruption that is on the inside. And we could feel so smug and self-righteous if Paul would just simply leave the discussion here. But he doesn't. He keeps going. He talks about the mental dimension in verse 28. And he says, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over same word. And you should read it again in the context. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. So how do you do that? How do you forget about God? How do you wake up every morning and forget there's a God? How do you live your life like there is no God? You see, the truth is, if you stop praying and you stop reading your Bible and you look around you and you find ways to pretend that there isn't a God who loves you and who cares about you, you can jettison God. By the way, when it says, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. The word for knowledge is full knowledge. It's the kind of knowledge that fully recognizes God's right to be God. And so when it says they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, it's the text's way of saying these are people who are making the statement, who needs God? These are the people who are saying, I don't recognize him. I don't approve of him. I don't acknowledge him. And you've probably met the person who says, I can't believe in the God of the Bible. Why? Because he so obviously rejects homosexual behavior. That's true. He does reject homosexual behavior and he rejects heterosexual behavior that's outside of the confines of of marriage because guess what God created human beings for intimacy and affection that would reflect his own love friendship and fellowship unbelieving minds become depraved minds and so they didn't think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God And look what it says. He gave them over to a depraved or a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. By the way, a debased mind in the New King James or a reprobate mind in other translations, the way that you debase something is you mix something that's valuable with something that isn't valuable. I'll use a simple illustration. I love pomegranate juice. I want 100% pomegranate juice. I go to King Supers and I buy pomegranate juice and it says 15% juice. And I feel like I've been ripped off. In the ancient world, they would have money ears and they would replace gold and silver with worthless metal. Here, the idea is that humanity has tested deity and disapproved him. Man's mind would not mix with God's revelation of himself. And so here is the idea. Human beings in their mind say, I want to do what I want to do with whomever I want to do it, whenever I want to do it. And they force the revelation of God out of their existence and they reject God. And so the reprobate mind Or the debased mind literally says a rejected mind. They rejected God and God rejected them. By the way, what happens when you have a rejected mind? 
You become so debilitated, so corrupted as to be quite unworthy in trusting your mind to make an adequate guide in the most simple decisions in the most basic moral decisions. This doesn't mean that you're as bad as you could be. Because Paul is going to remind you that there's always room for you to be worse. And so in verse 29 through 31, Paul will outline the content of a depraved mind. He's going to allow you to look inside of the depraved mind. And some people might think, well, are these the religious rantings of, of a first century, first century moralist? No. This short list, 23 different things. These were vices that were common in the Roman world. What becomes interesting is that they're not just vices in the Roman world. Now they become vices in every single generation in everyone's world. I can only touch on them briefly, but look what it says in verse 29. Being filled with all unrighteousness. Being filled with means to be full to the top, to be tanked up. And so when he says being filled with all unrighteousness, all unrighteousness really is everything that follows. It's an all-inclusive term. It means any immoral act. It means any act of injustice. And then he starts listing them. Sexual immorality. Pornei. It means every kind of sexual sin. There is no limits. No borders. He is talking about each and every type of expression. And then he talks about wickedness. But the word wickedness here isn't just... Evil in general. It's the word ponaria. It's an active kind of a mischief. It's depravity that plots to do what's wrong and then does it. This is the kind of harm that is dangerous and destructive. It's an active seduction. Let me give you an idea. It's like imagine a person has an alcohol dependency or they're struggling with drug abuse, but they're not they're not content to get drunk. They're not content to get high. They'll load the children into the car or the grandchildren into the car and they drive drunk with your children or your grandchildren. Good with that or bad with that? Of course you're bad with that. It's one thing for a person to be a drunk. It's another thing for a drunk to drive with your grandchildren in the car. This is the kind of wickedness that he's talking about. It's an act of wickedness that puts other people in harm's way. And then he talks about covetousness. This is a lust for more and more. It's the love of possessing. We might even use the term hoarding. When I get in trouble in this area, my wife makes me watch an episode of Hoarders. And she goes, don't you think it's time to throw some of this stuff away? But you see, it's more than that. It's more than just stuff. Avarice, fraud, extortion, greed, possessions, power, pleasure. You you need to understand something. This is way more than just having stuff. This is a lust or a craving that goes so deep that a person finds happiness and pleasure in having the stuff rather than having God. In other words, the stuff gives you the feeling that you would hope that you would have because you have a right relationship with God and Christ. And so he talks about maliciousness. Or inward viciousness of disposition. This is the tendency to put the worst construction upon everything. This is ill will, spite. This is holding grudges, full of envy, photonos. This is, this is way beyond jealousy. This isn't just being jealous over what other people have. This is wanting what they have, but then hating them for having it. This is the attitude that wants them not only to suffer loss, but to suffer while experiencing the loss. Then he talks about murder, which means killing the innocent. This is the unlawful taking of innocent lives in order to accommodate your own circumstances. Strife, debate, 
Eridos. But again, this isn't strife debate. This isn't getting into an argument in the sense of arguing and fighting in order because you have a disagreement. This is the kind of fight where you want what that person has and you're willing to fight them to take it. Deceit, dolos, bait, snare. It means to trick or mislead. This isn't simply telling lies. This is telling Three-quarter lies, half-truths, partial truths, in order to get a person to come to a wrong decision or conclusion. This is twisting the truth so that you can have your own way. Evil-mindedness, bad character, means evil in nature, full of evil or malice. This is the person who looks for the worst in everyone and usually finds it. And then whisperers, this is the only time it appears in the New Testament. It's only found here in this passage. A whisperer, the idea is secrecy. This is the idea of talking behind someone's back. Telling tales. And it doesn't even matter if it's true. Or false. You just like to talk about people behind their back in the hope of ruining their reputation. Verse 30, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents. Backbiters, again, where one was quiet, this one is loud. The backbiter is the one who openly broadcasts the tale. This is the person who's not content to talk about you behind your back. They'll talk to you to your face. They'll talk to you to everyone's face. They'll post it on Facebook. They'll post it on YouTube. They'll post it to anyone and everyone who's willing to listen. This is the person who can't wait to talk about anyone about something that's juicy. Haters of God. This is interesting to me because, again, it's the ultimate hate speech. This is the person who hates the commandments of God. This is the person who hates the revelation of God. This is the person who hates anything having to do with God or the boundaries that God establishes or the Messiah that God sends or 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 salvation or the gospel. This is the person who sees freedom from God and freedom from religion as their own personal God. Violent, you know what that means, proud, haughty. It literally means appearing above everyone else. We have a a word in our culture, it means stuck up or conceited. Braggart, of course, means a person who's a boaster. It comes from a word which means to wander. It suggests a pretender or a swaggerer or a braggart. This is the person who pretends to be something that he or she really isn't in order to change people's ideas about them. Inventors of evil things. These are are people who's not content with old fashioned sin, but they create new forms of sensational excitement because they're tired of the old forms of sin. So they have to invent new ways to dishonor God. Disobedient to parents, rebellious, disrespectful. Undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, undiscerning. That means without understanding. Untrustworthy means to break a covenant. This is a person who makes promises and then breaks them. Unloving. This was a word that described a mother who should have natural affection. Who abandons her child. Unforgiving. This means a person who's incapable of giving in. Incapable of being appeased. Incapable of being purified. Unmerciful means without pity. Incapable of respecting other people's feelings. Craving to use others as you will, regardless of the hurt or the shame or the consequence. And he punctures our pride and he convicts our hearts and he reminds us of people who don't recognize God because they don't want to. And in verse 32, it says, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do them, but also approve of those who practice them. They're foolish. They're faithless. They're heartless. They're Ruthless. And when you read, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death. You know what's interesting to me? 
I found a little list of all of the things that garnered the death penalty in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, homosexual behavior is considered a crime punishable by death. But the death penalty, however, is also prescribed for murder, for human sacrifice, for adultery, for incest, for rape, for sexual behavior outside of marriage, for witchcraft, for idolatry, for blasphemy, for desecration of the Sabbath, for perjury, for theft, for kidnapping, for contempt of court, for treason, for cursing your mom and your dad, for abusing physically one of your parents and disobeying your parents. Yes, I'm on the list. Yeah, I don't need you to raise your hand and say, I'm on the list too. I know you're on the list. The issue isn't whether or not you're on the list. The the issue is how could anyone actually not be on the list? But it's one thing to sin. And it's another thing to look at sin and applaud sin. To delight in those who do evil is a sure way to become even more degraded than the sinner you observe. What a telling application in our media-driven society. Millions of people sit in their living rooms watching debauchery, watching violence, watching deceit, watching the other vices, and then applaud what they see. And it makes little difference whether the vices are real or portrayed. In effect, they're doing what an ever-increasing depraved mind does. The pit of wickedness has been reached. All societies have people who practice wickedness and perversity. But a society that openly condones and then defends and then applauds and then encourages sexual promiscuity, homosexuality, greed, has reached the deepest level of corruption. Satan loves to deceive. Satan loves to think that if he can just get us to laugh at our sin or just to watch sin, but leave us with the illusion that we're not really participating in the sin, that we're okay. And Satan understands that if you are content to watch, then one day you will want to participate. And so Paul is making his case. How bad are we? How bad is it? How bad do you need a savior? Years ago, a pastor received a letter and the letter. He asked the pastor to read it in front of the congregation. It says, dear friends. I've been a part of this church for years and I've come to know some of you very well. However, there's something about me that none of you know. I'm a homosexual. I wish I could tell you who I am, but I can't believe you would still love me if I did. You all talk about the love of Jesus, yet I've seen a lot of hatred among you. Hatred not only for sin, but for the sinner. I've heard jokes you tell about people like me and the words you use to describe people with my problems. It's ugly and frightening to me. I'm not proud of my past. I pray that God will take away these desires. I'm praying for strength to resist temptation. But I feel all alone in my struggle. If I confessed my sin and my struggle to you right now, would it change our relationship? Would you continue to accept me as a child of God? Would you continue to pray for me? Would you still love me? I desperately need your help. And your prayers and your friendship right now. But I'm afraid to reveal myself to you. I just can't take that chance. Yours in Christ. A sinner. You know, when I read this, I couldn't help but thinking that it reflects the sentiment of so many whether they've experienced this kind of tragedy or whether they've experienced the kind of sexual abuse that leaves you broken and hurt. 
Before Rudy Giuliani, there was another famous Italian mayor named Fiorello LaGuardia. He was elected mayor of New York in 1933. Before that, he was a municipal judge. And one bitterly cold day, a trembling rag-clad man was brought before Judge LaGuardia's bench, charged with stealing a loaf of bread. And looking to the rear of the courtroom, LaGuardia saw the man's wife and children huddled together. And the children were sobbing. And peering down at the man, LaGuardia said, What do you have to say for yourself? The man looked down on the floor and he shook his head and he says, It's true. I stole the bread. I've been out of work. My family was starving. And what I did was wrong. Yes, LaGuardia said. What you did was wrong and the law makes no exception. I find you guilty and sentence you to a $10 fine. He wrapped his gavel. He reached behind him and he took his felt hat off the hat tree and handing the hat to the bailiff. He dug into his pants pocket and he pulled out a $10 bill and he tossed it into the hat. He said, we're going to do things a little bit differently than usual. He says, just this once, the court's going to pay the fine to the accused. Furthermore, I'm going to fine everybody in the courtroom 50 cents for living in a city where a man has to steal in order to feed his family. Bailiff, collect the fine and give it to the defendant. And then he said to the bailiff, oh, by the way, make sure I get my hat back. Do you realize this is exactly what Jesus has done? He's found you guilty. And he's paid the fine. And we live in a world that is so hurt, that is so broken, that is so overwhelmed by sin. It seems an amazing thing that any of us be unscathed or left unaffected. But the Bible makes it abundantly clear. The Bible makes it abundantly clear. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that God is in the business of forgiving sinners and turning them into saints. Of taking something that's broken and making it whole. Of taking something that was so wicked and corrupt and making it useful. But we have to stop. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord we thank you. That the reality is that sin is an ever present danger. Lord we pray that we would. Not. Retreat. From what the Bible paints as a picture of horror. That all of humanity lies in a wicked state. That whether we're Greek or Jew, whether we're male or female, whether we're black or white, each and every one of us is, has experienced the ravages of sin. And for some of us, it has hurt some of us way more than others. And so, Heavenly Father, we pray that by... Your Holy Spirit, Lord, we would learn to love one another and minister to one another and encourage one another and provide grace and hope and encouragement for one another. And Lord, as we look at this dark, dark picture, that we could see a ray of light and hope and redemption and grace and mercy. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.